Chapter Nine, Part Two of Limanora, The Island of Progress by Godfrey Swevin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Polity, Part Two. It was astonishing how rarely the councils had to meet, and how brief their meetings were and this was the reason why i had been so long in discovering any trace of constitution or polity in their midst one of their favourite maxims was that an organism to be healthy must work without calling attention to itself and this is truest of all in politics the government that is never seen or heard or felt and yet has no secrecy or need of secrecy about its proceedings is the most efficacious and wholesome those loud democracies which occupy most of their time in discussing themselves and their systems are corrupt already or on the road to corruption and monarchies that have to parade abroad in threats or expeditions are diseased at home and afraid to become too conscious of their disease the minimum of government attains the maximum of development was another of their favorite sayings to keep this sentiment living they led their youth back to the study of certain periods of their past that they were ashamed of called the stagnant ages some of them had been republican others monarchic some religious or superstitious others rationalistic or sceptical some warlike others peaceful their one common characteristic was that the state did everything for the subjects the island was a nursery the citizens were the infants no one ever thought of taking the initiative in any scheme whenever anything was needed the state had to look after it the chief duty of a citizen was to talk and hold meetings and criticize to act was beyond his province the state had to feed and clothe him at last and to drive him to his work with the lash it was the lash that disciplined the army and urged it on to battle the state had within it or in its service the few who retained activity or energy and these few knew how to fill their own coffers better than those of the country then came disgrace and disaster prosperity and patriotism and courage vanished in decay before the universal corruption on the one hand and senile helplessness on the other and all that remained fell an easy prey to the first ambitious marauder who invaded the island there grew up in the breasts of the Limanorans an instinctive fear of all encroachments of the state on the duties and functions of the family and the individual, and those who formed the inner council were as deeply imbued with this feeling as the rest of the citizens. One of their chief duties was to draw the line with care between what could best be done by the separate units of the state and what by the state as a whole. They safeguarded the independence of the individual, and encouraged his initiative in order that every tendency to originality should flourish and that the capability of meeting emergencies should grow stronger and stronger every man on the island knew that he must act for himself in innumerable circumstances without waiting for help or counsel and the women were trained to be similarly self-reliant readiness of resource confidence and courage were universal characteristics of the people and they knew from their study of history as well as if they had mastered it by experience that dependence on the action of all and interference on the part of the state would gradually destroy these 
It was, of course, the elders who were most keenly alive to this fact. In their councils they defined with the most exceeding care what might be done by them without injury to the habit of presence of mind and spontaneity of action on the part of the individual citizens. What they had chiefly to look after was the future of the race, and everything done by the citizen or family that endangered this had to be reviewed and corrected by them. So powerful a private influence had each elder over every individual of his family that interference in this respect was seldom needed. The ideals held before the race sank into the nature of every citizen and guided him in all his actions, if not now in all his thoughts. The matters that needed most deliberation were the revisal or expansion of those ideals and the selection of pairs for marriage and parenthood. They knew that a mistake in either of these would lead to incalculable evil, and would necessitate, in retracing the step, long years of thought and labor, besides the most drastic remedies. The guidance of the great public institutions needed little counsel or interference, but was almost automatic. Everyone concerned knew by instinct what he had to do, and had its interests so completely at heart that he required no reminder of the details of his duty. The inspection and review of the various departments were rather the task of the expert families, and chiefly of their elders, than of the elders as a whole. But there was one department for which the inner council or senate was wholly responsible. This was Rimla, or the center of force. Mechanical power was the one thing they had all along felt that must belong to the state and be controlled by the state. All other possessions, wealth, property, reputation, were mere symbols of it. To let it drift into the hands of individuals who might grasp more than was good for them or even monopolize it was to danger the future of the race. Only the wisest and best and the most imbued with Limanoran ideals were ever allowed to control the concentrated force of the island. In fact, no one but a member of the inner council could be the master of force, and his term of control was limited to a few hours at a time, for which period he was chosen from day to day, from amongst the oldest and most experienced of the nobler natured. It was the greatest honor the race could bestow. To be trusted by the whole people with the management and distribution that which was the fulcrum of all progress was to be marked out as one worthy to be divine. When I came to understand this, I saw the meaning of the reverence, almost awe, with which the master of force was pointed out to me on my first visit to Rimla. I had not measured the greatness of his power, or seen that it was far more real and comprehensive than that of any monarch or despot that had ever ruled. Where would their civilization or their ideals or great future be, without this marvelous concentration of naked energy? What would have become of the race, had a base ambition or an insane caprice entered into the thoughts of any one of their masters of force, while he held the reins of dominion in his hands? It was the duty, therefore, of every one who was elected to the office, however often he held it, however noble he had proved himself, however trusted he might be by all, 
to submit himself the hour before he entered Rimla to the tests of the inner nature and thoughts that the race knew, and this in presence of the oldest of the Senate. The workings of his brain and heart were stringently investigated, and after that he was sent to sleep, in order to have his dreams read and interpreted. If any of the tests gave dubious answer, he resigned his office and another was chosen in his place. For almost a generation this had never occurred, yet the precautions were as rigidly enforced as if the tests had often revealed defects. For the master of force held in his hands the key of their civilization and progress. To the elders all private ends and honors seemed trivial beside the aim of the race, the only divine thing, they thought, that they held in their hearts. To have been able to substitute anything on earth for it, even for a moment, was to them so absurd and insane as to appear impossible for any Limanoran. All this safeguarding of the probity and the sanity of the masters of force was therefore counted rather as a tribute to the importance of the office than a slur upon the individual. It was not that private motive or stimulus had been annihilated. On the contrary, they considered that the chief spur to progress was the struggle of the individual in competition with his fellows. He who could attain most rapidly to the ideal set immediately before the race was a marked and striking personality. To level all means of advance so as to make them the same for all was to destroy this stimulus to development. To be respected and at last reverenced by his neighbors was longed for by every man in the community, and everyone had his own special faculty and means for gaining such respect and reverence. At the great purgation of the island socialists and thieves, private property had not been abolished, but only disgraded. The socialists had been willing to erase all other methods of civilization and progress for the sake of the impossible dream, the equalization of property. The thieves had been willing to do the same for the sake of the swift acquisition of their share of it. They kept up an abnormal and morbid appetite for property which raised it completely out of scale and proportion, compared with the other symbols of power and means of advance. It became a disease that perverted their whole view of life, and nothing wholesome could be done till they were expelled. After their expulsion it was found that property lost its importance, and the word fortune ceased to be identified with its acquisition it fell to its natural and true position in the scale of means of development. The motive that the socialists had most prominently put forward for their schemes, the benefit of their poverty-stricken and starving brethren, had long become too artificial to hoodwink the wiser patriots. Not since the barbarous stage of their past had bare sustenance been a struggle and aim in the race, they had become too provident to allow population to outrun means or demand. There never had been for centuries anyone who needed his neighbor or the state to aid him with food or clothing, or other of the vital necessaries. If there had, he would have been too deeply ashamed of his mismanagement of his life, or his improvidence to allow anyone to know of it. The arrangements of the state and the carefully proportioned size of the population left no room for him to throw the blame on others. 
the body of the people laughed at the socialists for the patent absurdity of their pretext and helped the wise leaders to drive them out even if this motive had been the real one to disorganize the whole political and social system and to throw overboard the aim of the race for the sake of securing a beggarly pittance for feebler folk who ought not to have been brought into the world and ought not to be allowed to perpetuate their kind was a monstrous waste of vital power there had become deeply implanted in them a racial instinct that no step should ever be taken which could in any way weaken or endanger the sense of individual responsibility they knew that no amount of self-sacrifice no kind of guarantee of certain subsistence on the part of the workers in the state would ever make true and good citizens of those who had lost this even when they had come to have far more comprehensive and scientific command of the problem of population and when the communizing of property would have led to no evil results they refused to think of such a measure every man was allowed to accumulate as much wealth as he desired but none had now the ambition to accumulate it and as soon as communication with the neighboring islands was cut off commerce ceased and with it all opportunity for growing opulent every one had enough for his needs and these were great in a country so rich in resources and devices and so rapid in its development the family safeguarded the solvency of every member of it as it guaranteed his capacity to do competent work for the state and for himself the state demanded nothing that could be called taxation from the citizens part of their time ability and work was all that it required but it was one of the methods of showing patriotism given freely to the state it was indeed one of the chief reasons for the retention of private property that it allowed of an easy and ever available means of cultivating benevolence personal work was a limited thing and could be given in aid of others only at fixed places and times and in defined quantities but if it could be concentrated in private possessions then there was ready at all times and places and in any quantity the power of helping others without it generosity and self-sacrifice would have to mourn their petty limitations with it benignity was ever in exercise and remained an active and vital habit in the community if state possessed all and demanded all then the citizens were little better than slaves their virtues had no freedom no exercise and were bound to disappear to get as much as they could to sate their appetites as fully as they could was the only competition amongst neighbors in such a condition of affairs the blessedness of giving help spontaneously would never be experienced and would vanish from the community and in its trained sympathy beneficence and humanity the competition in limanora was in giving not in getting though getting was one of the conditions and basis of giving it is true that the advance of the race had almost superseded this palpable method of revealing the bounty of the spirit in former ages when hypocrisy was still possible and language and smiles were too cheap and ready a treasury to be wholly trusted as evidence of kindly intent 
private property enabled a man to give a trustworthy guarantee of his generosity the only other things he could sacrifice work liberty life were too personal and too limited in opportunity to be symbols of a bounteous heart now men and women needed no outer symbol to interpret and pledge their thoughts and feelings every one knew the soul of his neighbour as he knew his own and hypocrisy was a lost art having been long ago stripped of its motive this singular people retained the institution of private property fearing the apathy and languor that fall upon the energies of a socialistic people they had far higher stimuli to competitive vigour in the devotion to progress and to the aim of the race but they were not so foolish as to abandon the more material stimuli everything that would contribute to progress they retained everything that would tend to quicken the pace nor were they yet so far away from the more animal stage of their civilization as to be wholly rid of the fear of its return should it return the other motives even that of patriotism would be so shadowy as to be impotent against the deluge of appetite and indolence if the material competitive principle the system of private property had been abolished to avoid the risk of such a doom as had fallen on terralaria they refused to communize possessions and a certain sweetness of imagination of memory and of harmless romance had hallowed the system in their minds without it they would have felt a distinct depreciation of life that would not have found compensation in any advantage its abolition might have brought the evils that seemed to attach to the system in other times and nations attached to all other symbols of power as well birth position influence reputation character talent opportunity luck all that tended to differentiate one man from another and raise him in the scale of the use of power was open to the same charge as the institution of private property but early in their reforming career the limanorans had discovered that the evils that seemed to attach to these features of human life were not inherent in them they arose from the passions of envy and jealousy as long as these had possession of men's hearts the leveling process could never be final communities that made the attempt to plane down human society to a common level and to equalize all symbols and opportunities of power had an infinite task before them they really began at the wrong end and struck at the accidental consequences of what they thought an evil instead of getting to the root and source limanorans had wisely set themselves to bleach their natures of envy and jealousy and once this was accomplished they found that inequalities amongst them were instead of being an evil the greatest good the keenest stimulus of progress they smiled at the farce that went on in tyrolaria a farce that at intervals culminated in tragedy they saw the inherent futility of all efforts to do away with the occasions of envy and jealousy instead of eradicating the passions themselves they compared socialistic and equalizing schemes to bailing out the ocean with a sieve 
the disadvantages and abuses of private property and of all inequality in the symbols of power vanish with the opportunity and the desire to flaunt them in the faces of neighbors and rivals to use them as appeals to envy and jealousy as a rule it is in small communities and circles and narrow localities where every man in almost every moment kicks up against some neighbor that envy and jealousy reach their most virulent development and acquire the greatest refinement in the use of their weapons but that is in small communities that form parts of wider arenas of ambition and so learn arrogance and scorn of their surroundings where a limited society lives isolated from alien and ambitious neighbors a simple and unambitious life it is generally found to be almost free from the meaner emotions envy jealousy and their counterparts disdain pride and insolence among them there is little need of coercion or law or government the more primitive virtues of honesty truth loyalty courage come to them by nature the family eradicates or conceals all symptoms of lapse from them all rebellion against the interests of all the great drawback to such common wheels is that they are not progressive they remain centuries in one stage of civilization and seem to travellers from larger and advancing nations mere savages buried in filth and enslaved to the despotism of the seasons but this people considered such superficially imbruted communities near to ultimate salvation than the highly refined nations that exhibit a medley of wealth and starvation militarism and religion the maximum of government they held implied the minimum of progress for the essentials of spiritual advance are ignored by external administration a long experience of all types of body politic and a minute knowledge and study of the history of the world had made this people antagonistic to every form of great empire in their own past they had known the ambition to incorporate other peoples and extend the bounds of their dominion over the world but that was in periods that were stagnant or retrogressive in the essentials of a noble civilization great empires were able to concentrate vast resources but they spent them all on pomp administration and war whenever the world is parceled out into huge nations there is no chance of freeing them from the slavery of omnivorous armaments each is a threat to the freedom of the others and none dares disarm or spend her wealth on the arts of peace lest the other should take advantage of her unwarlike attitude the only progress continues to be in the size and the equipment of the armies and in the ingenuity of the instruments of destruction and should two or three absorb the others the military vigilance has to be all the greater even if the impossible should occur and one great empire should absorb the world the internal militarism would be none the less half of mankind would have to be employed in keeping the other half from rebellion against the central power huge empires instead of being guarantees of peace are direct incentives to war or at least to a permanent warlike attitude what has most obstructed human progress on its civilized levels is an inevitable tendency at a certain stage to mass into large aggregates 
That is, when there has been considerable accumulation of wealth or an exceptional development of commerce, and protection is needed by the wealthy or the merchants, then the military element gains the mastery of all natural power, and whilst there occurs a rapid evolution of all forms of aggression and defence, and of all the virtues connected with them, there is real retrogression, the spirit dwindles as the outer integuments bloom. Militarism only perpetuates itself and protects nothing but its own ambitions. It is in its last analysis a subtle fusion of histronicism and savagery. It attracts the same tastes as the prize ring and the theatre. Everything that encourages it or develops it stands in the way of the true advance of the human race. There is, they held, no hope for mankind in general, unless this stage of imperial ambitions and aggregations can be overleaped. Back must the world recede from vast empires, if it would attain to any nobleness of aim, or any development of the higher elements in man. Its sole salvation lies in small communities covering its surface and remaining free from the taint of imperial effort and militarism. Only when the nation has complete command of the numbers within it through the family, that is, when the nation is small, will patriotism become commensurate with humanity and the true goal of the human race be the aim of the individual. The family is the natural unit of administration in the community, and, as long as the heads form the common council that watches the interests and aim of all, it can never come into conflict with national unity and progress. The house and its goods belong to the household in Limanora, and although the members of it had equal rights to the livelihood that was counted fullest and best by the community, the individual, if mature, had freedom of action that would surprise a Western freeman. He was the equal of all members of the state, Within the aim of the race and the path of its progress he had complete personal initiative. His destiny, it is true, had been shaped for him during his pupilage, but the fulfillment of it was his own. His aims and desires had been implanted and developed and pruned whilst he was passing through childhood and youth, so that he would not in full manhood spontaneously change them. But when he became an independent citizen— his methods of fulfilling these were all his own. He had to contribute to the family treasury what was needed to keep it level with Limanoran affluence, and he was generally eager to give more, but all the rest was at his own disposal. The family had many buildings in common, but each full-grown member, whether male or female, had a separate house to retire to. Originality in the family— one of the chief methods in the race for encouraging progress could never be attained without cultivating originality in the individual. It had a track laid out for it through the future, carefully related to the march of the nation, but it might adopt what means it liked to make that track sure, and it might explore on all sides of it for new ideas and methods and resources. It was the same with the individual within it, he was encouraged to find his own means, and to use his imagination and his other faculties fully and independently, provided he kept his eye on the goal of the family, which was involved in the goal of the race. 
all the families were equal in their relations to the state whatever their occupation or wealth or origin might be this prevented the family from passing into the rigidity of the caste all work was alike honoured and personal worth was a test of the man and of the respect paid him irrespective of external symbols and representatives of power and to prevent the supersession of this by any other principle all the physical forms of toil that might be at one time or other be considered offensive were gathered into the hands of the state and all men and women had to take their share of them they were the duties connected with the various public institutions and especially with the centre of force it was recognized as a good thing that every man and woman should have physical exercise every day in order to keep the basis of the spirit in the best possible condition by working off the debris of the various organs and functions of the system this fitted with the principle that all force should be concentrated in the hands of the government the most severe physical toil was certain to be that which collected divided and adapted the vast accumulations of energy in rimla the duties in the centre of force were therefore portioned out day by day and week by week and every man and woman of the community had to spend a certain portion of each day in this vast forge of energy but the lighter work was given to the less muscular and the youthful had to bear the chief burden whilst the older as their share were occupied chiefly in superintending it besides this every citizen had to take daily part in the work of some one of the public institutions that were not assigned to special families or in the mechanical and unskilled toil of one of those that were under the care of special families thus two or three hours of every citizen's twenty-four were impounded by the state much to his bodily and spiritual advantage the only contribution in money or kind that the state made compulsory was that each family exchequer gave for the support of the medical architectural and other public professional families no valid system could have estimated the value of their services either to the state or to the individual and it was considered impracticable to evaluate the benefits received by each family from their work an amount was fixed which each had to contribute to every family that had the care of a public institution or the performance of a public duty but over and above this amount the voluntary gifts to them were very large the result was that the treasuries of public and professional families were oftenest the fullest and they were as ready and as able to give as any if there was any rivalry amongst the families and individuals in limanora it was in the delight of giving end of chapter nine